Lord, we can very easily convince ourselves that you hear us because of the many words we speak. But your word tells us otherwise. So as a people, as a local church, we come before you and we ask for mercy. We ask for mercy corporately. We ask for mercy individually. And then we remind ourselves of the assurance of pardon we have in your word, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins for the sake of Jesus. It is because of his work that we can be confident that mercy indeed has been poured out and the forgiveness of sins is accomplished. Help us, Lord, to be confident in that truth. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would meet with your people through the ministry of your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of your people. Would you do these things for your great glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's good to be with y'all this morning. Our passage of scripture for this morning is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. I've already mentioned it a couple times this morning, but before we dive into our text, I think it's only appropriate to spend some more time this morning before working through John chapter 13 to acknowledge that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Life, brothers and sisters, from conception through natural death is precious. It should be, no, it must be protected every day throughout the year. But today is a day that is set aside specifically to remind ourselves of that truth, especially in light of the fact that today marks the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade that abortion should be considered a constitutional right because of a right to privacy, a constitutional right to murder an unborn child within the womb because of the privacy one has in their health care decisions. Now, while it's good and right to celebrate life this morning, might I suggest that we also celebrate the fact that Roe didn't live to be 50 years old. Praise the Lord, such a wicked ruling has been overturned, but there is still work to be done, brothers and sisters. Though we have loved the unborn and worked for the overturning of wicked laws in our land, we must continue to pursue love to the very end, toward the goal of protecting all of life from conception to natural death in whatever sphere the Lord has placed us in. So for example, if you're placed in education, educate those around you, both young and old, of the reality that life begins at conception, that human personhood, to be a human being begins at conception, and that life must be protected both in utero and immediately after delivery. And the fact that I would even have to include that phrase, immediately after delivery, breaks my heart and makes me sick to my stomach. We must protect young babies from the attempts of wicked men and wicked women to snuff their life out through godless legislation. So if you're engaged in the political sphere then push for just laws for the protection of the life of the unborn. Advocate for laws that would abolish abortion and stand firm on God's word in the midst of liberal political activism's shaking sand ideologies. Moms and dads, remind your children how precious life in the womb is and how it must be protected. And do not shrink back from calling sin, sin. Because this world would gladly help to educate your children on how good and how right reproductive freedom is. But you must help your children see through the smoke, see through 
the mirrors and identify godless ideologies, where they are and when they creep up. Now, not only must we stand for the sanctity of life of the unborn, brothers and sisters, but we must also stand for the sanctity of life as God determined it for those outside of the womb, both young and old. Life is a precious gift from our Creator, and it is God who determines what we are and who we are, not our fleeting emotions and disordered thoughts. So Christian, to maintain the sanctity of all of life, we must also stand firm against the transgender craze we see in our world today. We must speak the truth in love, but speak we must. We must be willing to stand on God's word and declare that God has created us male and female. That is a gender binary, and to argue otherwise is neither loving nor wise, and it dishonors God's good design. To argue against God's creative design does not offer freedom that gives life. It places one in spiritual shackles that brings only death. It is to stand against the fullness of life that God offers. And yet, this is the kind of freedom of life our culture peddles. It's the kind of freedom of life that you see peddled within the church even today. We must also stand for the sanctity of life all the way until natural death. Our culture is a culture of death, and it's moving headlong toward the full acceptance of euthanasia for both the young and the old. But you see, that word, euthanasia, has such negative connotations that it has been relabeled dignity in dying, or compassion in dying, or medical assistance in dying. So, if you're not a fan of your current state in life for one reason or another, our culture will give you a pill for that. And sometimes, It's not just what you think about yourself, but it's the value that other people place on you. We've we've placed value in productivity, and once you've ceased to be a productive citizen, then you may want to consider your value to society. That's the line of reasoning so frequently operative in our culture. We must stand against such godless thoughts and promote the goodness and the sanctity of life all the way through natural death. Beloved, there is still so much work to be done in our day and age. By the grace of God, let's be about that work of maintaining the sanctity of life, upholding the preciousness of life from conception through natural death. Let's love to the very end. Amen? Okay. Now, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8, to the teaching and to the testimony. In John chapter 13, we've arrived at what has come to be known as Maundy Thursday of the Passion Week. It's the Thursday evening right before Good Friday, and we're going to see how Jesus, in loving his disciples, loves them to the very end. This last evening that Jesus will spend with his disciples before his crucifixion, death, and burial is the culmination of three years of ministry with them. And this last evening spans all the way from John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, which is sometimes called the upper room discourse. John, he really slows down the pace as he walks through this last evening Jesus spends with his disciples. Specifically in John chapter 13, Jesus gives a new command to his disciples to love one another. It's a command, which in Latin is the word mandatum, which is where we get Maundy Thursday from. And this command to love one another is grounded in Jesus' love for his disciples played out in the washing of their feet. And that's our text for this morning. So let's get into it. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Let's stand together as we honor the Lord in the reading of his holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. John chapter 13, 
verses 1 through 20, hear the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. John tells us in verse 1 that the feast of the Passover was at hand. See, the feast of the Passover inaugurated the week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the third Passover that John mentions. The first one was back in John chapter 2. The second one was in John chapter 6. And remember, the feast of the Passover celebrated Israel's liberation out from under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. It was a reminder of how Yahweh had redeemed his people from the destroyer by the way of the blood-stained doorframes of their home. Doorframes that had been painted with the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice which the destroyer would see and then pass over that home. It reminded Israel of how Yahweh brought them to Sinai, where he entered into covenant with them. He would be their God, they would be his people. He would be their husband, they would be his bride. And Jesus will reorient all of the Passover expectations around himself and his work as the great Passover lamb, as he loves his own disciples to the very end. Or, as one commentator has put it, Jesus loved his own to the last breath and in its highest intensity. This is a particular kind of love toward a particular kind of people for a particularly appointed goal. Now, here in verse 1, the Passover celebration has just started. Preparations have been made, expectations were high, and it's into that context that John tells us that Jesus' hour was now at hand. Jesus would be glorified through his sufferings, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and that time was now at hand. Jesus knew, he omnisciently knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and return to the Father as the conquering Son of Man, and knowing that his death was imminent and his departure was sure, and after being with his disciples for the past three years and coming together for this particular Passover meal, we might half expect Jesus to enjoy that Passover celebration the way that we would, eating and drinking and making merry with his closest of friends and family for tomorrow he was about to die. Especially considering the fact that this Passover meal itself was being reoriented around him. He's the guest of honor here. 
So if you knew you had one evening left with family and friends before you died, and there would be a feast in your honor, how would you celebrate? What are the initial inclinations of your heart? Would you be tempted to satisfy as much as possible your desires and your wants that evening because tomorrow such satisfactions would no longer be available to you? So, would you eat the best food and drink the best drink and have the deepest, best belly laughs of your life? And after all, the feast, the celebration, it's all about you. You're the guest of honor. I mean, that's the response Hollywood dreams are made of. That's the response we've been conditioned to pursue. But they seem out of place in the economy of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me here. There's nothing inherently bad about enjoying such good gifts. It's good, it's right to enjoy God's good gifts to and for his people if done in an upright, pure, and honorable way. But if we're honest, the orientation of most of our hearts during a celebration where we are the guest of honor is an inward orientation of our hearts. How might those good gifts, whether they be food, family, or friends, serve us. Very practical example. When was the last time you went to a birthday celebration where the one who was being celebrated actually served the guests? Well, rather than loving himself by pursuing the gratification of self, Jesus' response here in John chapter 13, and all the way through the crucifixion into the tomb and out the other side into glory is a service-oriented and others-centered kind of love. Though he rightly deserves to be served, Jesus loves his disciples to the very end. Now, a couple of follow-up questions here. How does Jesus understand himself as the one who serves? And how did he demonstrate his love, his service toward his disciples? We get this insider look into Jesus' self-understanding in verses 2 through 4 and verses 18 through 20. And I'm going to ask that you hang in there with me just for a bit because we are about to jump into the deep end of the theological pool together so that we might consider and marvel at three deep theological truths. Starting first in verse 2, John tells us, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And then John goes on in verses 18 through 20 to make it abundantly clear that Jesus was keenly aware that not all within his inner circle of disciples were clean. Jesus says that he's pointing this reality out now, Judas's betrayal, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, his disciples may believe that he is, I am. The English Standard Version, which we read from this morning, translates the end of verse 19 as, I am he. But in the original Greek text, it's the absolute statement, I am. Ego, me. It's God's covenant name spoken to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This is the sixth absolute I am statement in John's gospel account. It's the sixth time John has intentionally applied the covenantal name Yahweh to the person of Jesus. And here, we need to remind ourselves it's Yahweh alone who declares the end from the beginning, right? In Isaiah, in prophesying the word of the Lord and the destructive power of an enemy from the east, declares in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, these words, "'Who has before performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning?' I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And then in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, we read these words. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus' foretelling of Judas' betrayal in John chapter 13, beloved, is meant to display his omniscience and his power. It's meant to provoke faith in the one who is ego me, who is I am. Because, you see, Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God incarnate who will accomplish all of his purposes and whose counsel will always and forever stand. Second theological truth. Jesus is true God of true God. We just looked at that. And yet, he is distinct from the Father. John highlights this truth in verse 3, where there is both reception and fromness language that is applied to Jesus. So, without compromising the divinity of the Father and the Son, John distinguishes the Father from the Son. Our triune God is one in being, having a singular, indivisible nature, and this nature is fully shared without remainder by the three persons who are themselves distinct from one another. The Son being eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. As it relates to the Son, His proceeding from the Father, this eternal generation from the Father, is reflected in His temporal mission of being sent by the Father in the Incarnation. John said as much way back in John chapter 1, verse 14, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son comes from the Father in the incarnation, and as the eternal Son fulfills his messianic work as God the Son incarnate, he returns to the Father from whom he came. And that messianic work is the third theological truth I want us to see from verses 2 through 4 and verses 18 through 20. The devil provoked sinful deeds of Judas would ultimately fulfill Scripture. And in verse 18, Jesus says, He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9, which is a psalm of David. And in Psalm 41, David is recounting an illness that he had experienced. And in the midst of his afflictions, his enemies mocked him, and they wondered how much longer he would even be alive. Now, what's amazing there is that not only did David's enemies mock him, but verse 9 says that even David's closest friend conspired against him. He lifted his heel against him, which is a picture of contempt and the mental imagery that comes to mind is when a horse lifts its heel to kick behind itself, which is why, brothers and sisters, you should never walk behind a horse, right? You might find yourself afflicted as the horse lifts its heel against you. I mean, that's a general truism right there. You could take that one to the bank, okay? That's free of charge. Well, in John chapter 13, Jesus applies Psalm 41 to what's going on before him, where one of his very own disciples who was sharing in a Passover meal with him and who may have even had his feet washed by Jesus would ultimately betray him. His own devil-provoked disciple would raise his heel against him, and rather than just being near death, the actions of Judas would bring about Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, and his actual death. And all of this has verbal echoes. I hope you hear them. Verbal echoes of the first gospel promise in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which reads, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Psalm 41 and John chapter 13 remind us that the heel-biting seed of the serpent could not overcome the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Though Jesus would be betrayed by Judas and struck down, and his body placed in the tomb for three days, death 
would be defeated through his death and he would rise victorious on the third day. Because just as David is ultimately raised up in Psalm 41, verses 11 and 12, by this I know that you delight in me. These are David's words. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So too, in Christ, a greater Davidic king who was surrounded by his enemies, crushed the head of the serpent and swallowed up death through his actual death, and ultimately conquered the grave in his resurrection, was raised up into glory in his ascension, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Read in light of John chapter 13, beloved, I'd say Psalm 41 is a resurrection psalm that reverberates throughout the halls of history all the way through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the greater Davidic Messiah. So Jesus knows himself through and through. He's the eternally begotten son of the father who in the incarnation came to redeem a people for his own possession through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He's the infinitely superior one. The infinitely superior one. And that's what makes verses four through 11 so absolutely stunning. The infinitely superior one took the form of a servant. And he loved his disciples to the very end. And if this doesn't drive humility straight into your bones, beloved, I'm not sure what does or what will. God the Son assumed a human nature and in this human nature displays exponentially greater humility than you and I ever will, even on our best of days. When he rises from the Passover meal, lays aside his outer garment and robes himself with a towel so that he might wash his disciples' feet. He pours water into a wash basin and proceeds to wash the filthy feet of his disciples. This is the divine son who is worthy of all worship, all honor, all glory. He is worthy of all service, taking the form of a servant. Because you see, service is not undignified for this king. This king dignifies the act of service. So consider it. Consider it. The feet that Jesus is about to wash have been walking all day through the muck and the mire of dirt paths. Paths that had been taken undoubtedly by livestock and other animals which means that it wasn't just sweat mixed with dirt forming a layer of mud that caked the disciples' feet. It was much worse, and it was much more disgusting. It was such a disgusting task that the Jews had added oral law to the Torah, forbidding Jewish slaves from even engaging in the task of foot washing. It was even beneath Jewish slaves. And yet... Here is Jesus doing what neither the host of the Passover meal, nor his servants, nor any of Jesus' disciples even considered doing. Because it's in the middle of the Passover feast that Jesus rises up to wash their feet. Now they may not have considered such a menial task as foot washing appropriate for them to engage in. But one of them, in particular, sure was opinionated when it came time for his feet to be washed. In typical Petrine fashion, Peter sees what Jesus is doing and immediately speaks before he thinks. Open up mouth, place foot in mouth. That's what Peter does repeatedly over and over and over again. Peter seems somewhat incredulous to Jesus washing his his feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? Well, Jesus in love opens the curtain a bit more for Peter and for us when he says, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 and the crowds in John chapter 6, could not see past what was taking place in front of him toward the deeper reality Jesus was getting at. The foot washing, Jesus says, has deeper meaning that is not now understood but would be revealed later. 
to which I think Jesus is pointing to after the resurrection, these things would be made clear. Because the foot washing in John chapter 13 is about more than just foot washing. It points beyond itself. And the object to which it points is Jesus' ultimate act of loving service, his death and his resurrection. Now, what has John said already that unites the foot washing with Christ's death and resurrection? Interestingly enough, the only other place in all of the New Testament that the Greek verbs used in verse 4 for laid aside, he laid aside his outer garment, taking or putting on the towel, the only other place where they're used in all of the New Testament in such close proximity is John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' authority to lay down his life and take it up again is being displayed It's being acted out here in the foot washing of his disciples' feet. And the cleansing that Jesus brings points to the greater cleansing work that he will accomplish when he would willingly and authoritatively lay down, authoritatively lay down his own life in the crucifixion and then take it up again in the resurrection. Now, I've got to share with you just one more textual connection, if that's okay, because it's too good to miss. Looking again at verse 4 of John chapter 13, the only other place in all of the New Testament where we find the Greek verbs translated for rose and laid aside used together in such close proximity is in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, which reads, And he, it's the angel, said to them, the Marys and Salome, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen... He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Again, there's a connection to what is taking place in the foot washing and Jesus' future resurrection from the dead. And what John is doing in our passage of Scripture this morning, it's brilliant, it's beautiful, and it's biblically intertwined through and through. Again, though, Peter's incredulity boils to the surface in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. Or, more literally, not even into forever will you wash my feet, Jesus. To which Jesus says, what was I thinking? I mean, of course, you're right, Peter. What am I doing? I should surely not be washing your feet. You should be washing mine. That's not what Jesus says. He points to the reality that if he does not wash Peter, then Peter, and by extension, anyone else, will have no part or share or inheritance with him in glory. If the foot washing points beyond itself to Jesus' cross work and resurrection, which we've seen that it does, then Jesus is saying that if you are not cleansed by him and through his work, then you shall not share in his inheritance in glory. Well, if that's The case, Peter says, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, which to that we would want to say, bless your heart, Peter, bless your heart. And then we would want to turn it around and say it to us too, bless our hearts, because I'm sure we can easily see ourselves in Peter's reaction. It starts with something like absolutely not, and then seemingly in an instant moves to yes and then more. I mean, how quickly we swing along the pendulum from one extreme to the other. And how kind is Jesus? His kindness is is displayed in his loving correction in verse 10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. To be cleansed by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection which is the objective content of the word of the gospel, is to be completely clean. But what does Jesus mean when he says that there's still need to wash one's feet? It's a good question to ask. 
It would seem that John is emphasizing the definite nature of our cleansing by Christ's cross work, which we receive by grace through faith. And then the subsequent need for our ongoing confession and repentance of sin, not so that we might be justified again, but so that we might continue to grow in holiness as we recognize the remnants of sin in our lives and continually turn from them. Now, this kind of humility that we see in John chapter 13, Jesus taking the form of a servant and washing his disciples' feet, an act of humility that points forward to Christ's death and resurrection, was the same kind of humility that Paul focused on when he wrote Philippians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8 read, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the same hope prefigured in Christ rising up and taking his place back at the table, pointing forward to the resurrection, is what Paul declares in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is a great Christological hymn, right there. Who knows, maybe that Christological hymn was formed when someone was meditating on John chapter 13. But it's that hymn that actually grounds, it's the source, it's the motivation for Paul's command for the Philippians to complete his joy by having the same mind of Christ in verses 3 through 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the same direction that Jesus takes his disciples in verses 12 through 17 of John chapter 13. Jesus lovingly calls his disciples to look hard at what has just been done for them. He is indeed his disciples' Lord and teacher. And if the Lord and the teacher would stoop so low as to serve his disciples by washing their feet, they too must be willing to stoop and serve one another. Verse 15 reads, For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Now, it's worth asking the question, since Jesus commanded his disciples to wash one another's feet in verse 14, should that command continue on in a sacramental kind of way in the life of the church today? I mean, Jesus commanded the church to baptize. He commanded the church to celebrate the Lord's Supper as well. So should foot washing be a third sacrament observed by the church in perpetuity? I don't think so. And here are just a couple of reasons why. More could be said, but here are a couple of reasons. First, outside of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, there is no other reference to foot washing in the New Testament. There, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is talking about widows who had a reputation for good works. And two of those works were showing hospitality, which is immediately followed by the washing of the feet of the saints. So it seems to move the act of foot washing outside of the realm of the local church, outside of the context of church sacraments, and places it into the realm of hospitality shown to the saints. Second, all throughout the book of Acts, where both baptisms are being administered and the Lord's Supper is being celebrated, foot washing is conspicuously absent. And the same is true when we look at other New Testament letters written specifically to local churches. So if foot washing is not being instituted as a sacrament that the church should observe, what are we to make of Jesus' command to his disciples to follow in the footsteps of their foot washing Savior? Well, again, Jesus' love for his disciples is displayed in his foot washing action. 
which points beyond itself to his greater act of self-sacrificial love. Now later on, in John chapter 13, Jesus will institute an old commandment with new orientations, new motivations. Verses 34 and 35 of John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to love as Jesus loved. And how are we to understand the love that Jesus calls us to emulate? Well, the nearest example we have in John chapter 13 of what Jesus' love looks like is seen in his humble servant love displayed toward his disciples in the act of foot washing. And it's that very same kind of humble servant love that we are called to emulate, brothers and sisters. So if we were to ask the question, how are we to love? The answer would be, we are to season our love for one another with humility and service. The same kind of humility and service that Jesus himself displayed. So, while we are free to wash one another's feet, if we so desire, my family and I actually do that annually on Maundy Thursday. Daddy will wash the boy's feet. Daddy will wash mommy's feet. Mommy will wash daddy's feet as a display to them of the servant, humble kind of love that Jesus displays to his people. We are free to wash one another's feet if we so desire, but Jesus is calling us to more than just foot washing in this passage. He's calling us to follow his heart of servant love and humility toward one another. And catch this, because this is beautiful. Such servant love and humility brings with it blessedness. It brings with it beatitude. It brings with it joy. Jesus says in verse 17, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We are blessed. We are happy in our service, not because we receive anything from those we serve, but because we are being conformed more into the image of Jesus. And this kind of servant love and humility that ends in beatitude, ends in joy, is only possible if we are firmly rooted in the grace of God and Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers us to love in such sacrificial ways. To say it another way, if our acts of service toward others does not come from a heart united to Christ by faith, it does not honor or glorify God and is likely simply another way for us to make a name for ourselves. Look at how humble and service-oriented that person is. It establishes accolades for ourselves, and in the end, we will not be able to genuinely pursue an others-oriented love because our hearts are still inwardly bent in on themselves. Is that you this morning? Friend, inward focused in your service so that others might take notice of you, so that others might heap upon you the praises you think you deserve. If that's you, I ask that you would behold Jesus, the infinitely superior one who was humiliated in the incarnation, even more humiliated in the washing of his disgusting feet of his disciples, even more humiliated as he hung naked on a Roman cross, taking the punishment for his people's sin, even more humiliated as his lifeless body was laid in the tomb. But now he's glorified. He's glorified in the resurrection, glorified in the ascension to the right hand of the Father, glorified as he intercedes for us as our great high priest, glorified as our soon returning king to establish his kingdom and rule over all things in justice and in righteousness. Behold Jesus, friend, and turn from your sins to the one who knew a humility you could never fathom so that you might taste a glory you do not deserve, but he freely gives. Now, what does it look like for those of us who are united to Christ by faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to love and serve one another in humility? What does that look like? Well, it surely can't think to itself, I'm above that kind of service. I'm above that kind of service. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know what Bible studies I lead? Don't they know what ministries I oversee? Well, I mean, if they did, they'd be begging to wash my feet. Well, that seems a little extreme, right? But it can't echo that thought in a more respectable way 
like, well, I'd serve you. Sure, sure, I'd serve you, but, but I'm going to need to be served as well. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to need to be served, like at the very same time I'm serving you. My serve tank's running a bit low here, and the only way that it functions is if I've been served too. So while I serve you, and I do it in joy, of course, I'm going to need you to serve me in return. It's a little bit more respectable. What Jesus is doing in John chapter 13 blows those thoughts up. It blows them up. Jesus' service toward his disciples is an act of the infinitely worthy son taking the form of a servant and serving in such a way that cannot be repaid or made up for. The kind of service Jesus calls for in John chapter 13 reminds itself. If the infinitely superior son of God took the menial task of foot washing, there is no act of service that I could do that condescends any lower. Jesus has condescended this far. You cannot go lower than how far Jesus has condescended. And Jesus himself dignified that kind of lowly service so that we can find great joy in it. What does it look like in practice then, this kind of humble servant love? Within the church, it might look like serving the young couple who are struggling to get their kiddos into the building because their hands are full with diaper bags and car seats, and then inviting them into your home for a meal, all the while knowing that kids are messy and things break. It might look like taking some time to care for a saintly widow who's unable to finish some of the more physically demanding and oftentimes quite dirty jobs around her home, and then staying a bit longer, or you think it's just going to be a bit longer, to demonstrate your love for her through conversation, knowing that such conversations may actually extend for hours. It might look like inviting a saintly widower into your home for dinner so that he knows that his spiritual family has not forgotten about him. It might look like serving in the nursery and changing dirty diapers because Jesus dignifies changing dirty diapers. It might look like parking further away from the building so that those within our congregation who are older or who have physical hardships might, ha- might not have to walk as far to get into the building. But you see, that, that may seem like such a small act, but Jesus dignifies even the smallest acts of service. It might look like offering to wash and fold clothes for the single mothers in our midst, and while you're there, encouraging their hearts as they seek to love their children well. It might look like meeting with a single dad who needs encouragement in raising his children and discipling him so that he might grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ and love his kids well. What about in the home? Well, it might look like husbands and dads coming home after a full day's worth of work, and instead of immediately heading for the chair and grabbing the remote, we get down on all fours to play with the kiddos. And then we get back up to help with dinner. And then we follow Jesus' pattern of servant love by washing the dishes because we serve to the very end. It might look like wives and moms in their efforts to serve their families well, reminding themselves that Jesus dignifies their work. And as challenging and exhausting and literally self-emptying it might be, Jesus is there with them every step of the way and that their work is not in vain and it displays to the world the superiority of Christ, their Savior. Wives and moms, do you know another wife or mom who needs to be served and encouraged with those words? This morning. It might look like children submitting to their parents and doing the work they've been called to do all the way and with excellence, even when that work seems unimportant or too lowly for them. Because Jesus loved to the very end, he empowers those who trust in him to love to the very end too. It might look like caring for an aging spouse as his or her health is failing as much as you can which evidences to the world your covenantal love toward one another, the sanctity of life, and the superiority of Jesus. Now, obviously, this list is not exhaustive. There's no possible way that we could be exhaustive in giving examples, but I do think that list is representative of the full kind of love Jesus displayed in John chapter 13. 
It's rooted in Jesus' love for his people and in following in the footsteps of Jesus' humble servant love, brothers and sisters. We find beatitude. We find blessing. We find joy. Because in and through these things, we are being conformed more into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as others see our humble servant love toward one another, they might give glory to our Father who is in heaven. The world will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we have that kind of love toward one another. One commentator has said, and I'll close with this, Jesus does not call us to a life of leisure but of labor. He doesn't call us to follow him down paths sprinkled with gumdrops and lined with lollipops, but down dirt-covered, sweat-stained paths, paths that stink, paths that are not simple or clean or neat. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's worth it. God's blessing comes to the genuine disciple, the one who follows Jesus into a life of humble service. Of all the marks of discipleship Jesus could have highlighted, he highlighted a willingness to pick up a towel and get our hands dirty. Few things we do make the gospel more beautiful and compelling than when someone sees a Christian with dirty towels and clean feet. Dirty towels and clean feet make the gospel clear. Everyday people doing everyday things to serve others. That's what humble service looks like. That's what following Jesus looks like. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray, I pray, O oh God, that you would take the truths of your word and you would implant them deep into our hearts. I pray that the example that Jesus gives us in humble, servant-like love would not just be something that we look at and walk away from unchanged, but that by the power of your Holy Spirit, our hearts would be changed and conformed more into the image of Jesus so that we might love like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would take the truths of your word and help us to see the manifold ways that they can be applied here within our local church, within the home, within society. Lord God, will we be a people who are devoted to humble, servant-like love that displays the glory of Jesus, that displays his superiority? And would you receive the glory that you're due as we find joy in following in the footsteps of our foot-washing Savior. Be with us now as we turn our attention to you in songs of praise. We ask in Jesus' name, and amen.